I was reading a book the other day about people doing bad things and not even realising they were doing bad things. And then I realised that maybe I was one of those people. But I don't want to accept that I am. And, and more, I don't want to accept what it means if I am. I need my guest to help me sort this out because he's the person who wrote the book. I hope you're intrigued. I have to admit, I'm a little nervous. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. So I'm pleased to welcome author, comedian, playwright, public intellectual, David Baddiel. How are you, David? I'm all right, Matthew. How are you? Yeah, I'm I'm fine. Thank you very much. We've already talked a little bit about football, so let's not talk about football. Now, I want to get into some of the questions posed by your book. And I want to ask questions around the edges of it. I want to probe it a bit because it really kind of got to me. But before I do that, what I don't want to do is to miss the core thesis of your book, which is very powerful and needs to be heard. So just summarise the core of the argument that you're making in your book, Jews Don't Count. Okay, I'm going to put a little caveat forward because of your introduction, which hopefully I can put the whole thing into a basket of, which is that the reason you feel blamed, which perhaps helps to explain the book as well to sum it up, is that the book is targeted, as it were. The the people I'm talking to and about are very broadly, you might call them progressives, people on you know on the left, but very broadly on the left. I'm not talking about Labour Party members just here. I'm talking about people who care about identity and anti-racism and very much would see themselves as fighting the good fight against, you know, the reactionary, racist, bad, I'm going to say bad, elements of our culture. I'm talking to them and I'm critiquing them. And the reason I want to bring up your intro is it's a critique. It's not for me an attack. It's written, really, from the point of view of being myself, I would say, a progressive and therefore confused and feeling complicated about the ways in which, and now we get to the, what the book is about, the ways in which I feel the progressive community, the progressive discourse, which has been very targeted towards supporting minorities of all sorts, ethnic, but also gender minorities and able or not able-bodied minorities or whatever it might be, has been very targeted in supporting that in the last sort of 20 years, seems to me to have missed out the same concern, the same level of protectiveness, the same ability to actually understand, to want to understand from the position of not being that minority, Jews. There's a sort of indifference that I perceive, a slight irritation with when Jews bring up, oh, actually, this might be anti-Semitic or whatever, that exists in that community. And the book analyzes and deconstructs, in my opinion, why that might be and how it happens and how I, as a Jew, feel about it. It's a polemic. It's not meant to be a sort of straight, you know, balanced history. It's an argument. But I would say it's not about blame, really, even though some people might feel blamed. I mean, as it happens, I was on Nihal's Radio 5 show. We started talking about Satnam Sengara's Empire Land. And that's a book about the British Empire and the things that the British Empire did, written from the point of view of the minority who suffered under the British Empire. But one of the things Satnam has said is, you know, people react to this book, some British people react to this book as if they're being personally blamed for it. Whereas, in fact, this is about trying to deepen the argument and understand it and come out, you know, with more nuance and complexity, not about saying you're terrible and you have to 
feel terrible. So this is just one of the really fascinating issues that the book raised for me. And by the way, the book is short and it's lively and sometimes it's funny and it's not hectoring. So I don't want people to feel, I've got to not pick up this book because it's going to make me feel terrible about myself. Not, not at all. It'll just make you think deeply and want to talk to other people about it. Now, my organization, the RSA, went through a lot of, and it's still going through, a lot of soul searching around the Black Lives Matter movement and our response to that and our staff didn't think we got the response right. But some very intensive conversations. And one of the characteristics of some of those conversations is a sense that as a white person, I should not be questioning the view that a black person might have about what is racism. And to do so, in a sense, indicates that I don't get it at all. So the first thing I want to say is that it's kind of interesting because you don't want to say that to me, I don't think, do you? You don't want to say to me in this conversation, I don't think you have the right as a non-Jew to question the things that I'm saying about what I consider to be anti-Semitism or what my experience is. So in a sense, and this is, I think you make this point a couple of times in the book, already there's a difference, isn't it? There's, there's already a kind of sense that the conversation we have about anti-Semitism is, is more contested and can be more contested than some of the conversations we might have about other forms of discrimination or prejudice. Well... Okay, (laughs) already we're at high levels of complexity here. So I certainly make the point in the book that there's a, you know, particularly after Black Lives Matter, but going well before that, I would say for progressives, there's a sort of set in stone article of faith that when a member of minority objects to something that they feel has been racist, it is incumbent upon the white ally to not to challenge that, to try and understand it, to listen to it, not to pick it apart, not to say, well, you don't really understand how it's been said. You know, we live in a culture now where, to some extent, I'm not sure this is a good thing, but anyway, where impact is more important than intent. And so to say, well, that's not what that white person really meant is not really allowable and all the rest of it. Now, I'm not really, in the book, deconstructing that as a thing. I'm just saying that is a thing that exists for other minorities. It does not exist for Jews. I mean, it really doesn't. That um, I mean, even the other day, I wrote a piece for the Sunday Times in which I said that when I really gingerly, to some extent, questioned the use of the analogy of Kristallnacht by Arnold Schwarzenegger to essentially criticise Trump as a way of talking about the insurrection and the storming of the Capitol on January the 6th. You know, he did that very impassioned thing where he talked about how he remembered Kristallnacht and blah, blah, blah. When I raised issues with that on Twitter, that as a Jew whose grandfather was sent to a concentration camp after Kristallnacht, that I wasn't absolutely comfortable with that analogy, particularly because, uh, I mean, I talked about this, how Arnold Schwarzenegger's father was himself a very active Nazi. I kind of got told that I hadn't understood how Arnold was saying it, that I missed the nuance, that he didn't really mean it as a direct comparison, and essentially shut up because he's anti-Trump and we like that, and you raising this as a Jewish issue is just irritating. And I'm not saying quite, you're right, that you can't talk to me about that, but I am saying be aware of the difference. And that is the strong theme in the book. And I think you make the point in a way that is irrefutable, that people on the left apply a different kind of standard to anti-Semitism. They feel that they can question it. They feel they can question and critique Jews. And they can indeed very openly say that Jews are using the idea of anti-Semitism as cover 
for trying to make some other kind of argument. And principally, of course, that they say that anti-Semitism is used as a way of avoiding criticism of Israel. That's the kind of the main kind of political thing that one hears on the left over and over again. And that just wouldn't happen in relation, I don't think, on the left. That's your point. It might People on the right might attack all sorts of minorities. But on the left, we wouldn't go around saying, well, you're only saying that's racist because you're trying to smuggle in another kind of argument. You're only saying that's homophobic because you're trying to smuggle in another argument. But, but that is often said on the left about anti-Semitism. It's definitely said and was said a lot during the Corbyn years and is still said now by people who continue to come from that camp that, you know, I mean, it's the most obvious example. And my book is very much not just about the Corbyn years. And I think this is a much deeper and more complex malaise. And as I say, just doesn't just affect the Labour Party. But the most obvious example is that. The most obvious example is Jewish people being uncomfortable and uncertain and sometimes downright frightened by some of the things that happened during the Corbyn years and trying to say that and being told, no, either this isn't, you're wrong, or you're a Zionist shill, which happens a lot. You're just, you know, really, it's really about Israel. You're just trying to smear this man because you're a Zionist or much more insidiously and I would say unconsciously, a lot of people just basically saying, yeah, but he's better than the Tories, so can you just be quiet? Again, not something I think would happen if this was any other minority. It would just be taken more seriously as an issue. I didn't get many friends of mine ever saying, you're a Zionist shill. I got loads of people on Twitter saying it and still saying it if I raise any issues about Corbyn, but I certainly got people essentially saying, yeah, but, you know, what's the alternative? And I'm not saying... You know, I didn't vote for Boris Johnson, but I didn't vote for Jeremy Corbyn either. That's the first time I've not voted Labour in my history as an adult. And that is because I think, you know, there were very troubling things in the way that he thought about anti-Semitism and the way that he talked about it and the way that certainly a lot of his more fervent supporters did, which made it impossible. And, that's be- and the idea that racism, which is what that is, is not a serious enough issue. <laughs> to, you know, get in the way of that imperative to vote for Labour or whatever, I don't believe that would have been said if it was any other racism. One thing that's part of this is the sense anti-Semitism somehow isn't as serious or as prevalent as other forms of discrimination. So just there'd be remind us about the scale of evidence of anti-Semitism, you know, here and in Europe and other places. Well, I'll be honest with you, Matthew, this is something that I found quite difficult in the book, not because it doesn't exist, but because I'm not a statistician. You know, I'm a writer and, uh, you know, a a comedian, and the book, to some extent for me, comes from stand-up in that it's a storytelling book with, you know, examples from my life and examples from culture and examples, whatever. Then there is a bit where I thought, well, I'd better put in some actual sort of stats around this. I now don't have the book in front of me, but one of the things I, you know, is that 60% of hate crimes in America in 2018 were perpetrated against Jews. 60% of hate crimes, of recorded hate crimes, were perpetrated against Jews. But I say, you know, uh, yeah, in 2018, 60% of all religiously motivated hate crimes in the United States were perpetrated against Jews. By contrast, 18.6% targeted Muslims. Right now, you wouldn't have thought that was the case, would you, from the way that the left you know, talk about those two issues, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. But I say I don't like statistics much, so I just I chart some things that I found on a hate crime site, a, not a bad, a, a site that records hate crime, uh, about 2019. In Paris, a student was beaten unconscious on the subway for speaking Hebrew on his phone. 
during the Yellow Vest protest in the city, a writer and a philosopher were set upon by crowds shouting dirty Jew and dirty Zionist shit. In Berlin, a teenager was strangled by three men shouting anti-Semitic abuse at him. On Yom Kippur, a gun-wielding man tried unsuccessfully to enter a synagogue where approximately 80 congregants were worshipping. After a failed attempt, the gunman shot at nearby individuals, killing two and wounding two others. In London, a rabbi was hospitalised after being attacked by two teenagers yelling, kill Jews. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, I could go on. In Melbourne, a Jewish boy was forced to kiss a classmate's shoe. But actually, the reason I go for that, and then I go from some of my own experience of anti-Semitism, is that one of the things I talk about in the book, which I think is really, really important at the present time, is the politicisation of anti-Semitism, by which I mean the fact that, as a Jew, you see the left in particular making this weird decision that being concerned about anti-Semitism, being, as it were, an anti-anti-Semite, is something that is now owned by the right. That because of the Corbyn years and maybe a few other things like you know, in the Democratic Party, people being worried about things that Ilan Omar has said or whatever. There's a sense in which that being anti-anti-Semitism as an activism has been tainted, has now become the preserve of the right. And this has a lot to do with the very binary way in which politics happens now. And so the reason that I mention all those individual things and then go on to talk about some of my own experience is that what gets forgotten in that is the real fragile lived experience, to use a word a lot in present discourse, of Jews, such that when Jeremy Corbyn gets suspended on the 30th of October 2020 for his reaction to the EHRC report, I see multiple, multiple tweets on social media from left-wing people just saying, this is an attack on the left. And I think, right, can we not just pause for a second and consider how Jews feel about this report before we decide it's just a political thing and it's nothing to do with the individual experiences of Jews. That gets sidelined all the time into the politico-cultural war. And the book, to some extent, is an attempt to say, well, this is how, as a Jew, I feel about all this. So let's get to a couple of other dimensions of this, David. So one is the idea that, well, what are Jews? Are, Are you truly a race? This is the kind of, you know, you share... A religion, but you know, there is a kind of sometimes an implicit kind of idea that it isn't racism because Jews aren't a race, but you want to argue strongly against that, don't you? Well, yeah, I mean, this is something I've talked about a lot on social media and elsewhere. And you, this comes from the left and the right. And for me, and this is again very complicated, the feeling and, and indeed the logic of talking about Jews as an ethnicity has to be defined by racism against them. This is a sort of negative way of looking at it, but it's the only way of looking at it because there's no point in talking about how you think about racism without thinking about how the racists think. So the racists don't give a fuck about the religion. I mean, they might have done in 1390 or whatever when the York Massacre happened, but, you know, since the pogroms and certainly, you know, in the Holocaust and in modern neo-Nazism and white supremacy, there is no interest at all in whether Jews pray. I am an atheist and the Gestapo would have shot me on sight. There's nothing to do with that. It's a it's a blood thing. If you are born Jewish, if you have Jewish parentage, then as far as the racists are concerned, you are suspect, you are Jewish, you are working your bad magic against the world. And because it is not a relinquishable thing, it's not an optional thing like religion is, it is racism. It's like skin colour. Okay, And I would also say that I think particularly maybe for the left, but maybe also just for racists on the right as well, there's a sort of 
possibly subconscious thing going on as well with the constant caval of, oh, it's not racism because it's not a race, which a lot of Jews would dispute anyway, sort of genetically about Ashkenazi, Judaism, whatever. But forgetting that for a minute, the cry, it's not a race, is a way of downgrading racism against Jews to something less bad, i.e. religious intolerance. And in fact, for a lot of people, religious intolerance is sort of a good thing because, you know, organised religion, that's powerful. That's, you know, puts Jews once again, as they often are, into this, not this sense of a persecuted minority, but a powerful, oppressive group who are privileged. And religion is often one of those things. So I'm not interested, to some extent, in the whole religious thing. And I try and avoid, if if possible, speaking about Judaism, because I, it's certainly not relevant to me. It's not relevant to a lot of Jews in Britain, most of whom are secular. And it defocuses the point, which is that we're talking about something you can't not be. So these are all really powerful arguments. And yet I've got a challenge. And then and then I want you to kind of help me on a kind of personal confessional journey, right? If, if that's all right, Dave, sorry to be so, you know, demanding of you. But I understand that in the argument, in the, the argument you're making very powerful, very convincingly is that there is not equivalence, there is not parity, there is not consistency in the way we talk about anti-Semitism in comparison to the way that people on the left talk about other forms of oppression and discrimination. But what you don't want to do, and you've already said this in our conversation, is that it's not a book, it's a short, punchy book. You can't get into the whole question of what do you think is the right response to this question of whether or not people who are in an oppressed group have the absolute right to determine what is or is not offensive. You just want to say, well, look, I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to say whether or not that is an absolute right, whether or not one should ever be able to question when somebody says, look, I am part of an oppressed group and this is what I count as discrimination or prejudice or unacceptable. But I just wonder whether that's a tenable position, David, in the end, because I wonder whether in asking for equivalence in a culture where it seems that we are more moving towards a kind of cancel culture way of viewing things, we are tending to be quite brittle in the way that we talk about things, tending to kind of say, okay, let's try to back off having controversy. Isn't the outcome of that, that really you as somebody who I think is quite critical of what is lazily called cancel culture, isn't the outcome that you're simply going to say, well, I think that that should also apply to Jews, but Yet the thing you want to apply to Jews is something that you're ambivalent about, aren't you? That's what you're saying. So I say in the book, I would say I beat it quite heavily, this drum, intellectually, which is to say I'm not necessarily saying and I'm not, in fact, going to go into the rights and wrongs of various things. I'm going to say that these things exist and they don't apply to Jews. In fact, So to take an example of cancel culture, I begin the book with about 15 examples of, in my opinion, Jews not counting. I talk about a production of The Colour Purple that happened, I think, in, I can't remember, 2019 or something. And the lead in that, a young girl, turned out to be homophobic. She'd posted homophobic messages. She's a Christian. She's an evangelical Christian. She'd posted homophobic messages on her Facebook page, and she got cancelled for that. And she got kicked out of the production. And, you know, at the moment, I'm not sure she's working, although she's, I think, contesting it, right? Meanwhile, Alice Walker, who wrote The Colour Purple, wrote a poem quite recently about how Jews drink Christian blood and promote paedophilia. 
here's the poem, are Goyim meant to be slaves of Jews, and not only that, but to enjoy it? Are three-year-old and a day's girls eligible for marriage and intercourse? Are young boys fair game for rape? Must even the best of the Goyim, us, again be killed? Pause a moment and think what this could mean, or already has meant in our lifetime. And it's uh, essentially, she's swallowed, apparently, Alice Walker, conspiracy theories based on you know, racists reading the Talmud, the old Jewish book of exegesis. And, you know, she's promoting extremely ancient protocols of the elders of Zion type myths about the Jews in a poem. And unless I've misread the poem, this is not ironic. She's not speaking in the voice of a racist or whatever. Anyway, my point is, there was not a murmur in this conversation about Alice Walker and about not maybe doing that production of The Colour Purple because of this. But the other person, the young girl, who in a much less violent way stated her religious beliefs about sexuality, was out the door. And my point is that, yes, I agree that those things are not necessarily a good thing. And I'm not calling for the same thing to happen to Jews. I'm calling, and I think I use this word a couple of times, for a conversation about those things rather than silence. That's what I think should happen. I mean, as far as cancel culture goes, I don't like cancel culture as a phrase. I prefer to call it call-out culture because one of the things that the people who sort of like cancel culture are always saying over and over again is, oh, these people who got about cancel culture, look, they're on, you know, some Fox News thing or they're on this blog or they're in the Telegraph talking about it. They haven't been cancelled. And it's true. Lawrence Fox has various platforms, whatever. However... It completely ignores saying that the actual consequences of calling out an internet shaming and, you know, trying to get people removed from their jobs, that is an actual consequence or whatever. But I also think, and I'm sure you do as well, that some of the things that have happened as a result of social media and that sort of anger that happens to do with social justice is a good thing. Me too. And, you know, and Black Lives Matter would certainly not have happened in the same way without campaigns on social media and all the rest of it. So I think it's ambiguous, and I'm certainly not calling for the blanketing, calling out cancel culture thing that we see all the time. But the conversation about, is this okay? Is this fine? Is actually what's going on here, you know, leaving out one type of prejudice? I don't think calling for a conversation about that is calling for the proponents of it to be blanketly cancelled. It's calling for a type of parity that, to be honest with you, in a very Jewish way, would probably just lead to some conversations about it and some nuance and some complexity, and then people going about their business in the same way with a tiny bit more awareness. Yeah, no, I completely get that. I think what I'm saying is, it seems to me that in our slightly brittle discourse right now, the danger is that the subtlety of that position, which is we need clarity and a conversation, might lose out to a position which is simply, well, you know, in a kind of call-out cancel culture, Jews want the same right to be able to say, you know, nobody non-Jewish can ever play a Jewish person in a film or whatever. That is the danger of it, it seems to be, just because of the nature of where we are at the moment, where striking position seems a lot easier than promoting discourse. But I completely get where you're coming from. Well, I mean, it, I'm, I'm just say one, one thing about that, Matthew. I take your point totally. I'm just going to say something empirically. That won't happen. I mean, I am not that optimistic about the power of my book or anyone else who might be writing about this kind of thing. You know, it just will not happen that Gary Oldman, who is non-Jewish, you know, there's been no conversation, literally none, until I believe in my book about him playing Herman Mankiewicz in Mank. And I say in the book, I don't want him not to do that. I don't want him not to be given awards for it. I just want to 
someone at least to hold their hands up and say, is it okay? I mean, is it fine for someone who isn't Jewish to be playing such a Jewish character, to in fact be playing a Jewish character in a film that is sort of about Jewish control, in inverted commas, of Hollywood in the 30s? I know that no one is going to really kick up about that. (laughs) It's just not going to happen in the way that I do think that you know, if I was a voice from another minority, it could cause that kind of energy. It just won't. Yeah, no, and I get that. It's a really interesting question about how people interpret the book and the conversations that it leads to. Now, I'm going to do something else that I probably wouldn't do. So this, again, is confirming your thesis. I don't think I would if I was, you know, if I think if I was talking to somebody who was campaigning about homophobia, I, I wouldn't kind of say, look, will you help me as a straight person with how I feel about all of this? I think it would just be considered to be kind of rather, you know, pathetic and inappropriate. And the person might say, look, I'm not here to make straight people feel better about themselves. But as you say, we don't treat anti-Semitism the same way. So I, I therefore throw myself in front of you and say, help me to kind of understand if I'm getting things wrong here, because I have a Jewish thing, David. I am, I suppose, you know, if one is allowed to use this phrase, I have a kind of philo-Semitic mindset. You know, I actually, a few years ago, I actually spoke to about 15 years ago, I spoke to a rabbi and said, I'm kind of interested in, in converting. And he said, would you believe in God? And I said, well, no, I don't believe in God, but none of the Jews I know believe in God. He said, well, you have to believe in God if you're going to, you can't, you know, you can be a Jew and not believe in God, but you can't become a Jew not believing in God, which when I think about it is perfectly reasonable. But I mean, I guess it it was because I wanted the kind of sense of belonging and tradition and community and humor and culture that I perceived amongst my Jewish friends, because I feel like I have no cultural identity. And, you know, my favorite authors are Jewish and, you know, my favorite jokes are Jewish. Now, there's kind of two elements to this, I think. One is a point that you make in the book very powerfully, which is the thing about our perception of Jews is that very often there is this dualism, which says one and the same time, Jews are the most powerful people in the world. They control everything. They're the clever ones at the same time as saying they're below everybody. They're vermin. And this is a particular element of anti-Semitism, this kind of dualism that says both the Jews are completely in power and they're the lowest of the lowest. So is there a link in some way between a kind of philo-Semitic view and an anti-Semitic view? Is there some kind of relationship here? Hmm. So really, that's not a question I talk about in the book. I have thought about it myself. I believe Julie Birchall, who maybe has converted and is now a very extreme Zionist, is a philo-Semite. And I'm not a huge fan of hers, not least because she used to slag me off every week in her Guardian column. And I'm not going to accuse Judy Birchall of anti-Semitism for that. But I would say that one of the things that I noticed in the early part of my career, where I got an incredible amount of quite bad press, which, you know, might just have been people thinking I was shit. But occasionally, and I remember talking about this once with Ben Elton, there was a sort of virulence to it that I thought is something else going on here. And so I I have occasionally thought that philo-Semitism is the flip side of anti-Semitism. I don't think that's a, a very original thought, but I'm not saying that it always is. Martin Amis is a huge philo-Semite, and I don't perceive him to be a, an anti-Semite. It, it sometimes feels odd to a Jew. I mean, like, if you read Martin Amis's inside story, his, his new book, there's so much concern. And like, he's written four books or three books about the Holocaust or whatever, I think there is a slight sense with some like him, and maybe there is in you, I don't know, of the complexity of the Jewish story being kind of, you know, with all its tragedy and comedy and all the rest of it seeming 
attractive to want to be part of. And I don't know that that's necessarily anti-Semitic. I'm just going to, by the way, take a short digression here for comedy reasons, partly, which is to say I don't agree that you have to believe in God to convert. I mean, probably you do in terms of the technicalities of it, because I think you have to spend two years and then go for an exam with the Beth Din or whatever it is. But here's a little story for you. I am an atheist, and I often think of a lot of Jews as being atheists. There was a line in, I did a film called The Infidel, which is about a Muslim discovering that he was born Jewish. And we did a musical of that at Stratford Theatre Royal. And in that, the rabbi comes out at the end as an atheist, like all Jews. But I didn't know how true that was until one day a couple of years ago i got phoned up by a rabbi i don't know how he got my number but he's my local rabbi obviously i've never met him because i'm an atheist and he asked me to light the menorah you know the big candelabra that jews have at hanukkah we got a public one of those round my way and he asked me to come and be the person who switched it on it's electric and i really didn't fancy doing that so i played what i thought was my trump card and i said uh, sorry rabbi but you know i'm an atheist he said so am i and i thought wow i have <laughs> underestimated the level of atheism in Jewish thought. But I, yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, in a way, I tell you what, can I just say, I mean, this might be too much of a sidebar, but you'll be interested. I do think that one of the things about being an atheist Jew is about having been religious once. So I went to a very religious primary school. My grandparents, who were refugees from Nazism, were quite big in the reform synagogue. And so I grew up having all the sort of Passovers and all that kind of stuff. And so the decision not to believe in any of that stuff still leaves me with the sort of, you know, heritage and culture, whatever. And actually, I would say, and this is a terrible phrase to use, but I'm going to use it. If I am in any way a celebrity atheist, like all those, you know, Ricky Gervais and, you know, all those other people, I note that I am the only one from an ethnic minority. And therefore, that does give me a slightly different spin on religion. And I actually sort of do still admire many things about religion in the way that Richard Dawkins doesn't, because I have an understanding of how it feeds in to one's identity and one's culture and one's sense of who you are, even if you no longer believe in the existence of a supernatural being. And it seems to me that the fact that you're a comedian is is such an important part of this debate, because the point about humour it seems to me, is that if you, you know, I don't want to fall into all the kind of lazy kind of Jeremy Clarkson kind of, you know, tropes about political correctness or anything like that. But the thing about humour is that it's not politically correct, that it does take risks, that it does revel in ambiguity. And that's why it seems to me that when you point out that we don't take anti-Semitism as seriously on the left as we should take other forms of racism, this is not, as we've said earlier in the conversation, this is not a plea to just extend a kind of censoriousness, but it's a plea for greater kind of thought and consideration. And, you know, I don't want to stop telling Jewish jokes. I mean, I say Jewish jokes, David. I don't mean anti-Semitic jokes. I mean jokes which are funny and clever. Can I tell you another story? Obviously, you know, I, I am a storyteller, and so therefore I often think story is helpful. And again, I often tell stories about things that have immediately happened to me. So there is an old comedian. I'm not going to say his name, although, you know, I'm not in any way condemning him anyway. But there's an old comedian who at the moment is desperately trying to get hold of Frank Skinner, who is a very close friend of yours. And he's got my number, but he hasn't got Frank's, right? And he keeps on phoning me to say, can Frank give me a ring? And at the moment, Frank, not because he's got any problems with this guy, is just being Frankish about it. Like, yeah, yeah, I'll get around to it, whatever. Anyway, he phones me, this guy, a lot. And 
when he phones me, he often tells me jokes. And two days ago, he said, I'm going to tell you a Jewish joke. He's not Jewish. So how did just just tell me, how does that make you feel when someone says that? Well, hang on, let me tell you the joke, because oh. that's important. Oh. <laughs> does it depend on the joke? <laughs> it depends on the joke is absolutely what I'm trying to get to. So he told me this joke. I can tell you the joke. I'll try to summarise it because it went on for ages. He says there's a priest, an imam and a rabbi talking about the miracles they themselves have experienced. And the priest says, I was on a plane and the plane started to go down. I prayed to God and it righted itself in the air and everything was fine. And the imam says, well, I was on a boat. I was on a boat and it started to sink and I prayed to Allah and suddenly the boat swerved away from the iceberg and everything was fine. And the rabbi says, I was coming home from synagogue the other day on a Friday night on Shabbos carrying my wages and I fell over and the money went everywhere and I prayed to God and suddenly a hundred yards all around me it was Wednesday right (laughs) meaning that he could pick it up on a Wednesday because you're not allowed to pick up stuff on a Shabbos indeed you're not allowed to carry anything on a Shabbos so technically he wouldn't have been carrying his wages but let's not nitpick Anyway, I laughed because I couldn't be bothered to say, yeah, that's anti-Semitic. I couldn't be bothered. That happens a lot, right? I also remember being on the Today programme about five years ago in a discussion about Jewish comedy with two other people who weren't Jewish who told their favourite Jewish jokes, both of which were equally Jews are money grabbers. I told this joke. Let me just tell you this joke. I told this joke, kind of deliberately told a different type of joke, still about Jewish stereotypes, but different. There's a, an Englishman, a Frenchman, and a Jew sitting on a park bench. The Englishman says, I am so tired and thirsty, I must have beer. The Frenchman says, I am so tired and thirsty, I must have wine. And the Jew says, I'm so tired and thirsty, I must have diabetes. And <laughs> my point about that is, it does indeed depend on the joke, because it's not true that you can't tell Jewish jokes if you're non-Jewish. What you can't tell is anti-Semitic stereotype Jewish jokes. In my opinion, that one, right, I would accept that one. I mean, I think it's funnier coming from a Jew, but I accept and don't think it's a malign truth about Jews that they're a bit hypochondriac, right, and a bit worrying about that kind of stuff. And I think it's kind of affectionate. I don't think any joke that says Jews love money is that, however benignly you think you're saying it. Yeah, and the thing is that some jokes which for me are Jewish jokes, I would find it hard to explain why. And it seems to me that it's partly because there is a kind of weird reasoning. I don't know. I mean, So I'm going to tell you a joke now and you can, you know, Debbie Badil and the game's going to be called Am I an Anti-Semite or not? I'm not doing that. I'm just interested. I'm genuinely interested in, I like a joke about Jacob's driving down the road and a policeman comes out and says, Jacob, Jacob, stop the car. Your wife, she fell out of the car. 30 miles ago. And he says, thank God, I thought I'd gone deaf. <laughs> now, I, I don't know why that's... But that is, I mean, that's, you know what? That, that's I mean, it's sexist. Obviously, it's sexist as well, so I'm in deep trouble here. But I don't even know why that's Jewish. I think the reason it's Jewish is because it, there's a kind of, some of the best tropes are kind of form of reasoning. And I, I sometimes think it's to do with the, the nature of the Jewish faith and the rules that one has to apply if one is a religious believer and the kind of relationship between that and the real world, there's the, something there. I can never get to the heart of it, though. Well, actually, I wrote, I'll send you an article. I wrote a, an article about a book called The History of Jewish Comedy, which was so something said about that, about what exactly is the voice of Jewish comedy. And what you get in that joke, although it is a bit sexist, is this sort of very sort of down-to-earthness that I think is very important to Jewish comedy and that I think is part of what's attractive about it is I remember someone telling me this joke that weirdly even though you know judaism obviously is a religion it's unbelievably grounded 
in reality. And someone told me this, the shortest Jewish joke ever, which is a Jewish mother goes and sees the Dalai Lama and says, Sheldon, enough is enough. (laughs) (laughs) And what I love about that joke is it's very, very pathetic. It's just completely stripping away any sense of the importance and sort of dignity of all these things that we think are important and dignified for a sort of earthy Jewish motherness, you know. And I mean... You know, I, this is a different argument than specifically about Jews, but I suppose I I know about it most about Jews. I've said many times that I don't think you can ever say you can't do a joke about X, Y, or Z. You have to look at the individual joke, what it targets, what its contexts are, to some extent, who is saying it, and it will be different in every case. So that ultimately, it seems to me, is what your book is about, David. It's not as it might appear people who haven't read it they might think well this is kind of why can't Jews be included in the same set of rules which the left wants to apply to all sorts of other areas it's not rigid like that it's really it seems to me ultimately a book that says to people on the left that they need to think and reflect be sensitive and talk a bit more about some of these issues and that's why it's incredibly valuable I really found it a very powerful read I encourage anybody else who's enjoyed this conversation to get hold of David's book and I'm glad we ended with humour because this is not a book that is going to make you feel bad about yourself it's a book that's going to make you think thank you so much for joining me David thank you very much Matthew that's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future but we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.